Good morning. Please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We'll actually be looking at the entire book of 2 Timothy, so, um, but we'll start off in verses 13. I was at a conference, and the theme last week of the conference was last word. If you had a last word to give to someone, what would it be? As I listen, I couldn't help but think about my own family. I couldn't help but think about the graduates. I couldn't help but really think about you, the church. If I had one last thing to say to you, what would it be? What would I want you to know? How would I want you to live the rest of your lives? Paul's last words here to Timothy have this tenor about them. So let's read together 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the word of our Lord. Let's go to, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. Father, we pray even now that you would help us as your people to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. We need you this hour. We need you this hour to hear. We need you this hour to not gaze off. Father, we need you this hour to pay attention to your word. Sanctify us in your word, for your word is true. In the name of Jesus, amen. In this letter, Paul is on the verge of death. In a matter of weeks, he will be offered up as a drink offering, he says. He will be beheaded for heralding a gospel amongst the Gentiles. Yet in his final words, in the final words of Paul, he doesn't complain about his lot He doesn't think of himself, woe is me, look at me, look what I'm going through. He doesn't tell Timothy to gather up all the believers and come to Rome and wage war on Rome. Rather, he gives final instructions, he gives final reminders to Timothy to guard the good deposit, to be a proved worker of the labor of God, to not sway from sound teaching, and to remember Christ not only died, but he rose from the dead. He is clearly speaking as a man whose lot is death to a man who must carry forth the gospel to all the Gentiles, to the people in Ephesus. Paul tells Timothy to guard. This word, guard, can literally be translated as to hold to cherish, to have dear to yourself. It's like the first time a father holds his newborn baby girl. I know many of you have. He realizes his life has been changed. He'll do absolutely anything to protect her, anything to keep this little girl close to him. In a similar manner, Paul is saying, don't let go of Christ. Don't let go of Jesus. Don't let go of sound words. As a king builds walls around his kingdom, so you must build walls around this good deposit, this gospel, these sound words, this Christ, so that you may protect it and cherish it. This morning, 
as we consider this passage, as we look deep into Paul's final words, I would like to give you two encouragements and one warning. Two encouragements and one warning from Paul's final words to Timothy. First encouragement. Guard this good deposit by remembering the person of Christ. Guard this good deposit by remembering the person of Christ. I know what you're thinking. This may seem obvious. Maybe the most obvious thing Jordan's ever said from a pulpit. Guard the good deposit by remembering Jesus. Yet Paul begins this letter by telling Timothy, an evangelist, a pastor, a missionary, not to be ashamed of the Lord, but share in his suffering. He tells Timothy in chapter 2 to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He says in chapter 3, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in who? Jesus Christ. Timothy, church, remember. Think on him. Don't let him go. Paul knows what Timothy has believed in. He's shared the gospel. His mother and grandmother have shared the gospel with Timothy. Don't let Christ go. He knows in whom he has believed. So why? Why does Timothy do this? Why does, he rem- why does Paul remind Timothy to remember Christ? Well, Paul understands, doesn't he? He understands The temptations in this world will at times catch our attention. They'll drag us away from Jesus. Paul understands our former fleshly nature. Actually, the entire Bible, if you look at the Bible intently, doesn't the Bible uh, tell us how bad we are? It doesn't actually flatter you as man, right? It doesn't say, oh, look here, here's Jordan, he's really good. No, it actually says the complete opposite. The Bible paints us as fallen creatures apart from Christ, inclined towards evil. When left to ourselves, J.C. Ryle says we are corrupt after the fall. We are corrupt after the flood. We are corrupt when we are given divine laws and commandments. We are corrupt in the face of warnings, in the face of promises, in the face of miracles, in the face of judgments. In one word, the Bible shows us to be by nature a sinner. Even for believers, there's still a battle, right? There's still a battle going on in the life of the believer right now taking place against our corrupt flesh. And in order to rightly wage war against the flesh, Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling us to remember the centerpiece of the good deposit. And the centerpiece of the good deposit is Jesus. It's a person. Do you find it interesting, I do, do you find it interesting that we forget to value the air we're breathing right now? Each of you, you're breathing right now. That's amazing. You're actually taking breath in and out. And guess what? That's causing you to survive. How interesting is it that you forget to value the sun that shines on your face every day? You forget to value it. Something you need. You forget the water that runs through your bodies. You forget the eyes that you use to see and the ears that you use to hear. We are a forgetful people. Likewise, 
How often throughout our days, throughout the weeks, throughout the months, do we forget the very person who redeemed us, who saved us, who said, you are valuable to me. Valuable so much that I'm going to come to a cross to save you. I'm going to die for your sins. And yet we are so forgetful. He comes to us and he says that we are his and he is ours. Jesus should be our greatest delight. He should be our joy. He should be our comfort and rest, our hope and our confidence, our cornerstone, our foundation, and the very medicine for our souls. But so often... We forget Timothy's greatest ministry in his life was to a people in Ephesus. Even though Timothy was a mighty man of God, Paul still called him to this people in Ephesus and he called the people in Ephesus to hold on to this gospel, to remember this gospel, to remember Jesus. I want you to flip over to Revelation 2. I want to show you something. Revelation 2 is a a good warning to us this morning when we don't guard the good deposit, when we don't remember Jesus. The first words that Jesus says to a people are to the people of Ephesus. A people in whom Paul invested in, a people in whom Timothy invested in. And here's his speech against them. Verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, talking to the church of Ephesus, your toll and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. All because his people didn't remember. They didn't remember the centerpiece of their love, the person of Christ. I'll tell you a story. A year ago, a year ago this month, my mom passed away, and this it was, it was sort of the, the, the month leading up to her death was amazing to watch because I got to see my dad in such an honorable role. And my dad, anytime I was around or anytime I was up there in the home and anytime he was talking to my mom, he was telling her, remember Jesus, believe in Jesus, hope in this Jesus, reading her scripture. Loving her all the way to the end, holding her hand, telling her these things. The same is true for us. We need that in one another. We need each other to be calling us back to remember Christ. Beloved, hold on, guard, guard the first love you once had. Guard this relationship that you have with Jesus. Second, encouragement. Guard the good deposit by holding on to sound doctrine. Guard the good deposit by holding on to sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 1.13 says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Chapter 2 verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, 
a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, rightly handling doctrine that has been entrusted to you, been given to you. Chapter 3, we've read this verse before, but chapter 3, verse 15 through 17, says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the person of God, the believer, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hold on to sound doctrine, Paul is saying, so that you might be equipped and carry forth every good work that is prepared for you. And Paul's framework from this letter, we must be a people who do not swerve here and there from the truth. Sound words and doctrine should be at the heart of our souls. Actually, sound words are profitable for our souls. I want to sort of remind you of some truths that you have come to know and found dear over the years. I want to remind you of some truths to remember to hold on to them. First, we must hold on to a clear doctrine of God and our own depravity. Here's what our own confession, the 1689 says, and if you find this sweet, which I hope you do, pick up your confession, read it, know your confession. Our confession says this, God alone has immortality. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely, holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. How he works amongst us is for his glory. God is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, merciful and kind, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. God tells us that he's about his own glory and that he hates sin and that he is willing through the person of Christ to forgive sin. You understand that by nature, you and I, we don't perceive anything true about who God is. Actually, anything that we do understand about God is tainted by our own sin, our really own unrighteousness that we suppress the truth in. There have been nations, nations all around the world who have made up their own gods for centuries in order to swage their own consciences, swage, sort of diminish their own sin so that they can have their idolatries, they can have their perversions, i.e. the Romans, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Americans, Here in our culture, we no longer call them gods. We call them philosophies. And these philosophies have embedded themselves in our society, from the Enlightenment to Marxism to postmodernism to now expressive individualism. Some of you are like, what in the world? Never heard of those things. It's okay. Expressive individualism is something we're doing, we're, we're sort of dealing with now. 
It's telling us I get to express myself in the way I want to express myself. I have my truth, you have your truth, but we can't tell each other whose truth is absolute truth. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. When there's no absolute truth, guess what? There's no law that governs. There's no authority. There's no God. Let me give you one more example that I was reading about this week that really in our intern meeting we're reading about uh, that has really perverted our culture. Specifically, it's the Freudian uh, philosophy, which tells us that the happiest, most joyful, most complete person is the one who indulges in his or her own sexual desires. That the conscience of an individual, his psyche, is bound by pleasure he or she finds in their sexual identity. Honestly, within this philosophy, there's no hope, right? There's zero hope in this philosophy. Why? Because there's no way one can get ultimate satisfaction and pleasure because as you engross yourself in sexual immorality outside of marriage between one woman and one man in your own union with Christ, it will only become more and more and more wicked. You will only go down and down and down this stream seeking out your own pleasures and you will never find satisfaction. Now, Jordan... What in the world does this have to do with holding on to sound doctrine? What does this have to do with holding on to sound doctrine? Everything. Everything. We know from the scriptures that God hates sin. He hates adultery. That he has clearly defined what sin is by the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. In fact, God hates sin so much that he floods the world. He destroys the world. God hates sin so much that he burns cities to the ground. He drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea because of what? Sin. Sound words from the scriptures show us that God stands wholly against our sin. If we hold to sound words, if we hold to sound doctrine, we will be able to combat the false doctrine, these false philosophies that says our sinful urges are who we are. That nothing else matters. We will know that a holy God demands what? Holiness. First Peter 1 says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Hold on to sound doctrine about your own sin. So the world and the devil and his lies will not infiltrate your souls. Not only does God, God in his word, speak clearly about the depth of our own depravity and sin, but praise the Lord, God's word brings comfort. It brings peace. Sound doctrine, sound words also show us that God has an effectual love, a specific love for his people. From the very fall of Adam, God promised that there would be an escape from sin and death. Genesis 3.15 implies that Christ will crush the head of the serpent and deliver us over from sin and death. That there is an end to sin and death. Even after the fall of man, God loves to show his abundant grace. Grace after grace after grace. Remember his grace even now. His long suffering during the days of Noah. His forgiveness 
for Abraham's fear of Moses' anger, of David's adultery. Remember his delivery of Israel out of slavery. Remember his gracious warning from the prophets. And remember the manifestation of Jesus Christ. The greatest grace that has ever been shown, the Son of God coming to the cross to forgive sinners, you of your sin. If you believe in him and trust wholly upon this Christ. His grace is all sufficient. Hold on to the sound doctrine of God's grace. But even more, even more, hold on to the sound doctrine of your future state. We are dying. Our bodies are dying. We live right now in inequality, poverty, distress, oppression, persecution. There are politicians here in America, both conservative and liberal, who are evil and perverse. In fact, according to Scripture, 1 John 5.19 says that we are of God. We are actually His people, but the entire world lies in their own folly, their own wickedness, and under the power of the evil one. Yet the Word of God also tells us that there is a world coming. That those who have received grace and forgiveness, who have believed upon this Christ, there's a world coming where there is no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more pain, where there is perfect knowledge, perfect justice, perfect happiness, and perfect peace. Revelation 22 tells us of a heavenly home. In heaven, there will be no more night. There will be no more darkness, no more evil one. There will be no more shadows or veils of Christ. No more glimpses of what's to come. In heaven, we will see God's face. You will see the face of God, and you will dwell with him forever. That's what's coming. Hold on to sound doctrine. Don't sway from this sound doctrine, this truth that is so restoring. Come to it, believe in it, hope in it. Put your entire bodies and minds into this sound doctrine. My final point is a warning when we don't guard our purity. When we don't guard our purity, we mock Christ instead of remembering him. And we don't remember sound words that have been entrusted to us to guard when we don't guard our purity. Friends, God cannot be defiled. Yet when we continue to sin, not having a contrite spirit, not having remorse, not repenting, we actively ridicule the work of Christ and what he's done in our place. There is an old example I'd like to give you. Imagine I had a friend who has been in blatant adultery, cheating on his wife. What would you think of me? if I daily fellowshiped with this man, broke bread with him, laughed with him over his sin, and never brought up that his sin would be sending him to hell, never told him of judgment, never told him to repent and come to Christ. Surely you would think that I approve of his adultery, that I actually love his adultery. In the same way, Sin is the reason Christ died. Will you be a friend of it? 
Sin pierced the heart of the Son of God. Can you continue to love it? Paul doesn't mince words in his final address to Timothy. It's really interesting to me. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at a few verses from there. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says this to Timothy. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of purity and holiness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Doesn't this right there sound very familiar? We live in an impure world, which means we have to be diligent to guard our purity. After Paul gives this huge list of examples of godlessness in verse 10, he reminds Timothy to continue in some, continue following, continue guarding Paul's example of godly conduct, of patience, of love, of steadfastness, and of suffering. And Paul didn't just naturally have all those things, right? Paul learned that from somebody else, right? Jesus. Follow in the holiness of Jesus. As Paul calls Timothy to guard his purity, God had charged the priests in the Old Covenant to guard the holiness of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was just a simple place where the presence of the Lord was. A simple place where God would dwell. Adam, our first priest, was given the first duty to guard the tabernacle, the garden. Through him obeying, through him cherishing and keeping the garden pure, Adam and all his posterity would have flourished in the garden. They would have flourished. Likewise, in Numbers 18, we see that the priests were given the duty to guard the tent of meeting, the sanctuary and the altar. Yet from Adam to the priests of Israel, they were all insufficient guardians. They weren't good enough. They could not guard the holy temple that God dwelled in. This is the very reason John 1.14 is so sweet. Let me read it to you. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us, came to us, a place where he was in the temple and in the garden. He is now dwelling with us in the flesh. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. We are unable to guard ourselves from the impurity of this world. Yet we have a great high priest who has sufficiently delivered us over from all impurity. He's delivered us over from our sin. In John 17 Jesus prays to his father using this word kept, which is another word for guarded. He says first that he is 
first kept and guarded the Father's word. Jesus has done that. Then he says to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep, you guard them from the evil one. Not only did he deliver us from our sins, Jesus, but he prays that the Father would now guard us and keep us. And the Father does that. He does that. You should be happy because he does that, because you can't do that. The Father does this by giving us the Spirit to dwell within us, to tabernacle with us. We are now, in fact, the priesthood of believers who are charged with guarding the good deposit that's in us, that's residing with us. He's not far off. He's not in the heavens somewhere. He's with you. He's near to you. There's so much hope in what you have been given. So as we close, I would like to give you two practical ways, and these are really for the graduates. I hope you're paying attention a little bit. I would like to give you two practical ways you can guard the purity of the good deposit that has been entrusted to you, and both ways have to deal with how we engage the local church. How we engage the local church. First way, we can guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us is being an active participant in Lord's Day worship, being here. So often, our Christian culture teaches us that church and our services are all about our desires, our comforts. It really has that expressive individualism sound to it, right? This, in fact, makes us passive consumers at church instead of active participants. Because what happens is we'll say to ourselves, you know what, we sang too many old hymns today. I think I'm going to go check out the church down the road. Maybe, maybe it's this, we sang too many new stuff. We sang too much new stuff. I think I'm going to go to the church down the road. Or maybe it's this, the pastor had too many illustrations. He got too personal today. Or maybe he prayed too long. Or maybe he preached too long. That was a joke to Sean, guys. You can laugh some. I'm joking about that. Do we reflect on why we at times think or behave this way? When everything is about our preference, then we'll pursue the place that we're the happiest, where we'll feel the best, where grace is preached, forgiveness is preached, yet holiness, sin, and knowing God or at best merely implied, but never explicit. We're acting as if a religion that offers the greatest sacrifice of our God requires no sacrifice on our behalf. Friends, God in his divine goodness has set apart one day a week where we come to worship him. This is for our good that he commands us to do this. This time of worship is not centered around your preferences or my preferences. It's not centered around my feelings or your feelings. There are dangerous churches within our own community that will meet your wants, but they will have a hard time meeting your needs. A very hard time meeting your needs. You need to know that now. 
being an active participant in the Lord's Day worship means you come to the throne of God and you worship Him how He is designed in Scripture to be worshipped. We sing, we pray, we read, we listen to God's Word from the very one who wrote it, inspired it, and who illuminates it. That's why we're here. That's what we need to be doing to guard this good deposit. Be an active participant in this church. Second way we can guard the purity of the good deposit is being in community. Being in community. A good example of this was Paul and Timothy. While in chains, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4 to come to him soon. Paul loved Timothy, and Timothy loved Paul. Likewise, we are not spectators when we come to church. You're not just coming to see me up here or Sean up here preach. That's not, you're not coming just to see Trey sing. You're coming as a part of it. We don't just wait to, in fellowship, for people to engage us. <laughs> we need friendship. We need a community of believers. Often we're tempted to think that the pastors and staff have to manufacture some type of event for us to build relationships within the church. And let me tell you, the pastors and the staff will continue building events and having things like that because what we want is for there to be sweet community. We want to give you examples for that. But let me tell you, if you're waiting on the next event or activity to begin meeting with another person in the church, you're missing out. You're missing out on what it means to have sweet friendship, sweet community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around, around them, who engages them, will create community. Friends, you don't need to start a Bible study, though not wrong in itself, to have community. My hope, I believe the pastor's hope, my hope is that our body is full of so many rich friendships that the pastors can't keep up with how many of you are being served by one another and loved by one another. We just don't know who's serving one another. That's why I really want a dream of community. We just had a dream. I want it to be an active community where you're serving one another. You're loving one another. Parents, your children will be encouraged by seeing you develop friendships within the church, wrestling over hard subjects, praying for one another. Your children will learn how to weep and to rejoice when they see you actually do this with other people. I tell the students all the time, it's okay to be socially awkward. Guess what? They, they understand that. We're good at that as youth. It's okay to be socially awkward. It's okay to be a little weird at times. Adults, go up. <laughs> Introduce yourself. Ask someone to coffee and lunch or ask a family over for dinner. And guess what? That person or that family can't do it that night. You have 300 other members that might. Don't be a silo. Don't be off to yourself. We need one another. I need you. You need me. We need each other in this body. Let's guard the purity of the good deposit by seeking out healthy friendships. God is so good to us here at Morningview. God is so good to you to have good pastors, but he's also good to you by having a good people, 
a people who love the Lord, a people who will point you to Jesus. A final way the Lord calls us to guard the purity of the good deposit is through the sacraments. This morning we have the privilege to do one of the most glorious things as a community of believers, and that is to remember Christ's death through partaking in the Lord's Supper. This meal is here to remind us that Christ actually did die to impart to us a good deposit. Acts 2 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. If this describes you, if you have believed upon the Lord Jesus, you are repenting of sins, have been baptized, and are a member of a Bible-believing church, then you are welcome to this table and come joyfully to this table. I'll pray. The servants can come. Father in heaven, you are so good and kind that you have given us a good deposit. You have entrusted to us this gospel, this Christ. Father, I pray even now that we would come forward to this table and think wholly about the sacrifice that was given for us, that we would repent and come joyfully to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.